All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the first hour of episode 492. It's just me and Jason again. This will be part two of 491. Uh, this is all based on James Shelby Downard's King Kill 33. Uh, welcome, Jason. And a rather chilly good morning. So we made it through like, I think about half of the bullet points, which is why we're doing a part two. But there's a lot of ideas in this. And I should reiterate, I notice a lot of people are grabbing the writings that are associated or in and around Downard. As Michael Hoffman pointed out, there are some where you'll be reading along and you're like, come on, man, this this is fantasy. And what Michael Hoffman pointed out was there was some things that were over the top and meant to be tongue in cheek, but the indicators that told you that were edited out of the text for whatever reason. Anyhow, for what it's worth, let's jump in. I think we're, well, you know where we're at. John F. Kennedy, the one and only Catholic president of the United States, was a human scapegoat, a pharmacos. Pharmacos, or pharmacvos, can mean enchantment with drugs and sorcery, or beaten, crippled, or immolated. In alchemy, the killing of the king was symbolized by a crucified snake on a Tau cross, a variant of the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus Christ was tortured and murdered as the result of the intrigue of the men of the Temple of Solomon, who hated and feared him. They were steeped in Egyptian, Babylonian, and Phoenician mysticism. Masonry does not believe in murdering a man in just any old way, and in the JFK assassination, it went to incredible lengths and took great risks in order to make this heinous act of theirs correspond to the ancient fertility oblation of the killing of the king. I have stated time and again that the three hobos arrested at the time of the assassination in Dallas are at least as important, symbolically, as operationally, and that they comprise the three unworthy craftsmen of masonry. This mechanism is at once a telling psychological blow against the victim and his comrades, a symbol of frustrated inquiry and the supposedly senseless nature of any quest into the authentic nature of the murderers and a mirror or doppelganger of the three assassins who execute the actual murder. So this is case in point. How did Shelby possibly come to unravel this? And whatever the answer to that is, let's just start at the top here. Uh, the pharmacose breakdown, which you might want to listen again, this is where we get pharmaceuticals. It's the same idea. It is the same meaning. And as we go along here, it's logic flees the scene, right? So here he's pointing out, well, these are the guys that killed Jesus. If you go to any Masonic temple, almost all of them are going to be all about learning the New Testament side of things. And yet, as it goes on, it associates part of the ceremony of the killing a king with the, unthree- with the unworthy craftsman. And anyone who looks at that story is, yeah, they weren't good guys. Nobody appreciated them. But here they are, again, playing a role. It's, I don't know, it beggars the imagination. I don't know what else to add, Jason. A lot of folks may not even know about the three hobos or the three tramps. And there's a picture, at least one that I'm aware of, that's uh, floating around out there about these three individuals, but nothing's ever really said about them. 
Well, that's the thing. You've got to go back. Okay, you're going to test my memory. I knew I should have looked this up. I think it's Hiram Abiff, right? Isn't that the guy from the original yes. supposed mm-hmm. temple? Uh, he gets killed. I hope I'm not messing this up. I really do hope. Look, just go back and read about the killing of Hiram Abiff. And I think that's where the attachment of the three unworthies comes from. But it's ironic to say the least, because in that story, it's like, oh, there was this great architect doing these great things. And look what these losers did. And here these losers are purposely put in. And I think you're right, Jason. There is one image that I'm aware of. There might have been more, but I'm aware of the one image that has to do with JFK that day in supposed Dealey Plaza. Um, It's just, it's strange, man. It's like all the world is a stage. And when you begin to piece this all together, that is literal. I mean, it's not, it's not like a suggestion or a, a simile of any kind. It's literal, but anyhow. The Kennedy administration was referred to as Camelot, supposedly in joy over the renewed promise of the youthful and vigorous president, his lovely storybook wife, and the potential of new frontier reform. No doubt, if one attempted to point out the ominous symbolism of the Camelot phrase, such a person would be dismissed as trying to ruin a good thing. But that has already been accomplished by someone else, and the resulting disenchantment has prepared us to believe the worst about the real story of our internal government. A hawk is sometimes called a merlin, and a merlin was a sorcerer of symbolical importance in sex magic or magica sexualis. So this is kind of strange, too, when you go to think about it. So everybody's aware that Kennedy was like, they, they were all saying this is the new Camelot. But anyone who actually took the time to consider the story of Camelot, it's, it's, it's like so many things where we have in our mind, it means a good thing. But look what happened at Camelot. Um, the king loses his queen. She cheats on him. The king in the older tellings, uh, Arthur, the king, which I believe is related somehow to Arcturus the bear, which is a northern constellation near the pole story, but that, that's a whole pole star. That's a whole different thing. His wife cheats on him, and in the older tellings, he is wed to the land. His kingship, his, his rulership is married to the land. In other words, if as a ruler, he's doing well, the whole land is doing well. But when, he, when it all falls apart, the land goes to hell. And if you read the really old versions of Camelot, it's not the best thing to be compared to, I would suggest. And that launches into the whole story of the Grail, but that's another thing. But whenever we hear these metaphors attached to people that has to do with a myth or something in our mind makes, oh, that's positive, he's King Arthur, we should really take a look and and comprehend what's the actual truth of what they're being compared to. Because to this day, I think everyone thinks Camelot's just great, but the outcome of Camelot, not so great. As sorcerer of the reign of Camelot, Merlin was known to have put a goodly number of persons to sleep under a fairy thorn, and no doubt Camelot was partially employed in advance to connote to the insiders of the secret society that a work involving secrecy and silence and that Kennedy's end was ensuing. The site of King Arthur's castle was not far from Tintagel, the Camel River, and Camelford. The Camelot White House stories are symbolical fecal matter. Vice President Lyndon Johnson invited a Pakistani camel driver to the White House, and JFK, responding with his flashing good humor, said, 
If I tried that, I would have ended up with camel dung all over the White House lawn. Camelot and camel symbolism are still used in a variety of supposedly ordinary communication formats to transmit cues, set agendas, and impart other esoteric information before and without the knowledge of a public which believes itself to be the most alert, knowledgeable, and advanced in recorded history. All right, so this is lifted directly from James Shelby Downard, and he just said what I just said. If you knew the actual old, not the retellings and the reworkings and the Hollywood specials, but go back to the original tellings of Camelot, that's what he's referring to. As a matter of fact, I think people would probably, I'm guessing, be hard-pressed to find Merlin putting people to sleep under the fairy thorn. And that's the other part of this. How is it that we don't have a comprehensive reckoning of what that story is? Is it a good outcome? Is it a bad outcome? But as he goes along here, he gets into the camel symbolism. And it almost feels like a bridge too far to us in the modern era. But when I first came across this and I began looking looking into it, I was like, damn, I would never have comprehended this had someone not underlined it, highlighted it, and pointed it out. And here he's showing the insiders kind of encoding things. So if you're initiated into what's going on, you immediately grasp, why is it Camelot? What the hell's up with a camel? Anyhow, let's keep pushing. Camelot turns up again and death-dealing as Project Camelot, the U.S. attack on the vicious communist regime of Allende, which ended in the execution of Salvador Allende. Readers are warned away from drawing specious conclusions regarding the nature of the conspirators simply because an occasional Marxist is eliminated. If statistics are to be the guide, the conspiracy is overwhelmingly leftist by this criteria, since the suppressed number of persons assassinated far exceed those of left-wing sympathies. The entire left-wing, right-wing scenario is a chess game, where various pawns are motivated by emotions to follow the orders of kings and queens, whose allegiance is to psychological control objectives, and propaganda is one of the ways that psychological control is established. All right, at this point, this should be unquestionable. No one can doubt this. And yet, we don't have to look very far to find people's minds still entangled in the nonsensical red-blue narrative, left-right narrative in this world. And let's try to put this a little more simply. What is it that a king or queen does? And we're using these words in lieu of whoever the hell's ruling. We could be saying the federal people, Washington, D.C., whatever, whoever's in charge. But what are they doing? They're governing, right? So what is government? Well, govern is to control, and meant is always mind. And it's right in our face. And what are they up to? Well, Shelby's laying it down here. What do they do to keep control? They use propaganda and psychological controls, and they have become quite deft at it. To the point where when we look at who we suppose is running our government, they have become pawns in a much larger game from a much higher authority. And at this point, we could actually argue, what power does our supposed federal government, as we like to call it, even have when compared to Google or Amazon or any number of gigantic tech corporations who, again, are controlled from above even if you only take the rules of corporation. They have a board of directors. They have shareholders, these kinds of ideas. In other words, there's a top above the top above the top. 
And how are they doing this? Well, he underlines it. Psychological control is how controls are established. Mason Lyndon Johnson appointed Mason Earl Warren to investigate the death of Catholic Kennedy. Mason and member of the 33rd degree, Gerald R. Ford, was instrumental in suppressing what little evidence of a conspiratorial nature reached the commission. Responsible for supplying information to the commission was Mason and member of the 33rd degree, J. Edgar Hoover. Former CIA director and Mason, Alan Dulles, was responsible for most of his agency's data to the panel. Is it paranoid to be suspicious of the findings of the panel on these grounds? Would it be paranoid to suspect a panel of Nazis appointed to investigate the death of a Jew or to suspect a commission of Klansmen appointed to investigate the death of a Negro? Representative Hale Boggs, the only Catholic on the commission, at first agreed with its findings, and when he later began to seriously question them, he was accidentally killed in a plane crash. You can look up the Hale Boggs plane crash. It is what it is. And we could use such simple logic to get to this. So Kennedy is killed. Who benefited? Well, immediately, Mr. Johnson became the president, didn't he? And all this is going down in Texas. And Shelby takes so much time to break down the Southwest and how every big town, major thing in Texas was formed. And they're all Masons. So he's exactly right. Would you appoint Klansmen to look into the death of a black person? Hell no, you wouldn't. Who's going to put the, the, the fox in front of that, you know, in charge of the hen house? Nobody, but that's exactly what's going on here. And on and on it goes. And, and to show how invasive this is, he names Dulles. Well, the whole airport for a state is named after Dulles. And by the way, there have been endless conspiracy theories about the tunnels beneath it. And when that doesn't go anywhere, or it does, they just simply look at the artwork in this place and then go find the cornerstones, which are dedicated to the Masons, I believe. I haven't seen it in a while. I think it's even using the old Hebrew dates, not the dates that we use in this country typically. And so on and on it goes. And I think this was back in a time when we were a little more grown up. This was the problem that people had with Masons. I'm not sure if it's Shelby, but in one of the things I read, they explained that people had tried to show if someone was brought to court for a serious matter and they were a Mason and the judge was a Mason, by their very vows, they have already trumped what it means to be disposing of justice, in other words. In other words, they can do a hoodwink or anything else because that oath supersedes all the other oaths they might take. In other words, how could a courtroom ever be fair? And there were pushes against having judges being Masons, but it's pervasive. If you begin to look around at how many Masons are involved in how many things, it is pervasive. Hoodwink. Definition. A symbol of the secrecy, silence, and darkness in which the mysteries of our art should be preserved from the unhallowed gaze of the profane. Dr. Albert Mackey, Mason, member of the 33rd degree, foremost Masonic historian of the 19th century, writing in the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. That is how they see us, as profane, as Cowans or outsiders, unclean and too perverted to look upon their hallowed truths. Yes, indeed, murder, sexual atrocities, mind control, attacks against the people of the United States, 
All of these things are so elevated, so lofty and pure, as to be beyond the ken of mere humans. It was in Orwell's animal farm where similar profundities were proclaimed. Freedom is slavery, war is peace. Some are more equal than others. And there it is. I mean, good on you, sir, for bringing Animal Farm into this. And is it, is it lost on anyone? Where I grew up in my country, I'm not sure how it is everywhere, everybody was required to read Animal Farm, maybe seventh or eighth grade. And there were other ones. But what's interesting of all these books, they're all about the same thing, that this idyllic life we have can come tumbling down at any time. And then it did. So what did the folks know who put this on the reading list? Was this a bit like Revelation of Method? But let's go back up to the top. It says here, a symbol of the secrecy and silence and darkness in which the mysteries of our Masonic art should be preserved from the unhallowed gaze of the profane. Do we need to say anything about this? Who the hell are they? Who the hell are they? Now, Shelby goes on to show murder and all these things, the killing of the king being a good example, are all associated with this group. But who in the hell are they to question the creation of the creator? Every single living thing in this world was put here by a higher force that they can't claim lordship over. They couldn't replicate it. They couldn't do it. They can't own it. And here they are judging all day long that the living things put in this creation are somehow unhallowed. But here's the kick in the teeth. If it were true that we were unhallowed, what is it that makes us unhallowed? Well, that they haven't shared their secrets. So in essence, by standard logic, they are creating the unhallowed, if that was even true in the first place, which it is not, just to make the point. I did just look up. There are multiple pictures of the tramps available for anybody interested. Black and whites? Yeah, they're all black and whites. And those are drawn from supposed skit at Dealey Plaza? Yeah, they were taken by newsmen on the day. If I'm not mistaken, they were never named. They were supposedly questioned. Whoever arrested them, never named. Officer unknown. So it goes to show you. And this is still going on today. I'll make another point. Another thing that in the Downard writings goes on, actually, it might even be the Hoffman writings. I've forgotten. I've read so many things. Like the son of Sam. What happens is they supposedly find, finally catch this skit. They finally catch the murderer. And like one of the main magazines in the country, I don't know whether it was us or people or whatever it was, a big, big magazine announces case closed. And they point out, and I was in law enforcement, that is not case closed. The moment that you have an arrest, that is when the investigation proper begins. They did the same thing with uh, the Unabomber, Kaczynski, Ted Kaczynski, which also, by the way, was announced the same day the tobacco industry was about to be outed. So they took the eyes off everything that might have been going on that day because the news only has one eye, right? You can only look at one thing. But my point here is when you, when you take apart how these things are being done, it's not a secret anymore how it works. It's not even that clever. And you begin to wonder, how, how the heck have we been sleepwalking so long? Anyhow. The cryptocracy is a brotherhood reminiscent of the ancient secret societies, with rites of initiation and indoctrination programs to develop in its loyal membership 
the special understanding of its mysteries. W.H. Boart, Operation Mind Control from 1978. So I believe that's a publication by Boart, B-O-W-A-R-T, W.H. Boart, Operation Mind Control, apparently published in 78. This is one I have not read. Again, folks, if you find the PDF, go ahead and link it in the comments and these types of things. Let's, let's keep going here. The Knights Templar were closely allied with the sect of Assassins, a confraternity which is identified in Masonry as Ishmaelites, one resembling Ishmael, whose hand was against every man, and every man's hand was against him, one at war with society. Hassan Sabah was the founder, and as chief of the Assassins, his title was that of Sheikh el-Jabel, which is commonly translated as Old Man of the Mountain. Sabah's minions were notorious users of hashish and henbane, and according to all reports, some of their trips were veritable psychedelic masterpieces. I cite this data because the assassins were widely known and referred to as the Freemasons of the East. All right, I believe what he's referring to, well, I know what he's referring to, which isn't exactly spelled out, and my father actually gave me a lesson. One day he brought home the, uh, the, the Columbia Concise History of the World or something like that, which I ended up reading cover to cover. And believe me, it's mainstream, but that was a long time ago. I don't think I was even 20 or something like that. So what he's pointing out is if you know anything about the story of Isaac and Ishmael, um, you'll know that Ishmael is supposedly uh, all the lines of Arabs came from that. And it's in the Bible, it's whose his hand was against everyone and every man's hand was against him. It all has to do with Abraham. People can go read it. But as we go in here, he starts talking about people who were later labeled which it's hard to look up now, hashishans, because they were taking strong doses of hashish. And supposedly, this is where we get the word assassin. Hashishan, assassin, that's the story that is being pointed to here, just to try to make it clear. Masonic writers do not always agree on the legend of the three assassins in their interpretations. Neither do they agree that there was a change of legend of the third degree into that of the Templar system, in which James de Molay was substituted for Hiram Abiff, with the three assassins being represented by Squin de Flexian, Nophadi, and the Unknown, a triad of assassins invented to inculcate a Masonic modus operandi. The wretched Sirhan Bashara Sirhan is one of the three assassins and an Ishmaelite. Lee Harvey Oswald, Divine Power, is publicly linked in the group mind to the assassination and in this symbolical way can be said to be the second of the three assassins. James Earl Ray bears the same association and thus becomes, for the purposes of this study, the third of the three assassins. So this gets deep and has everyone noticed? Who remembers the old Mel Gibson movie? I don't know, probably from the 90s, Conspiracy Theory. I believe it's called. And he keeps screaming to everybody, you know, pay attention to their names. Why do these people have three names? Why isn't it James Ray? Why is it James Earl Ray? And why isn't it Lee Oswald? Why is it Lee Harvey Oswald? And he's pointing to this, but in all of the three assassin examples that were given here, each of these assassins has three names. And so I guess the main thing to be pointed to 
I mean, I'm not quite sure, but maybe it's that if you see that it's reported with three names, you know, there's going to be two others or something like that. I, I'm not exactly sure. It starts to get so deep that even when it's pointed to, you still have questions, or at least I do. I wonder if Michael Hoffman could shed light on that. I'll bet he could. How about Mark David Chapman? Exactly. So there it is again. And in the movie, they're tipping the hat left and right. And they're doing things like showing the MK Ultra mind control that's been applied. And they're using the book, what is it? Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. And I'm just counting them out as I go. I guess that would probably count as four. But um, that's the point. Anyone who goes back and looks at that movie and then gets back into the James Shelby Downer writings, you'll start to realize how simple a thing it is to initiate people into knowing certain things. And how obvious is this? Why is it that some killers have two names and some have three? Well, I think that's what Downer is pointing out here. Maybe on the most basic understanding, and I am venturing an educated guest that when we see that big murderer in the nation, national news again, and three names are presented to us, we should look for the other two surrounding it, maybe. Cagliostro was made a mason on April 1st, 1776, in London, England, at Esperance Lodge Number 289, which at that time met at the King's Head Tavern. Cagliostro is credited with having developed a system of magic called Egyptian masonry. His teachings were based on occult material in a manuscript entitled Maconere Egyptiane, which was ordered to be burned by the public executioner. Many of these teachings dealt with the ways in which magica sexualis could be used for the summoning of forces. Well, here's another odd duck. Everyone's heard of Cagliostro, right? I mean, you're familiar with the name, even if you don't know who it is. As a matter of fact, I believe that Hayao Miyazaki, that is so famous for some of the great anime of our time, Princess Mononoke, others, I think one of his early films covered Cagliostro. But the point here is, is if you try to look this up now, uh, things are getting pretty scrubbed on it. And it's clear that this name and this idea of dark magic was pretty important which is what Downard is linking up here. But isn't it interesting that in many of the tellings, it's just like a fanciful, magical tale. And you may have noticed in the French rewrite of the name, Maconary, it's Mason, you know, Egyptian masonry is basically what it meant. Mesmeric masonry, aka Egyptian masonry or magnetic masonry, was devised in collaboration with the pioneer hypnotist and master mason Anton Mesmer. One does not have to search far, at least in this regard, to note the more than casual relationship to hypnosis, which existed in mesmeric masonry. This 18th century mind control is the heritage of 20th century American and British intelligence agencies, which have always been Freemasonic in organization and of interest, if for no other reason, than the important head start masonry has had in the behavioral sciences. Perhaps the basis of sonic mind control, which is described in our day as the avant-garde of behavior modification, can be discovered in the interests of Freemasons, Benjamin Franklin, and Anton Mesmer, in the hauntingly delicate melody of the glass harp. Right, they're pointing at some pretty occult stuff here. So part of what Downard showed us matters because there are magnetic energies in the world. 
And this has to do with the geomancy or why a place is used to do a certain event. It's not just the history, but think of the idea of ley lines. What are we talking about here? We're talking about energies. In some of the very old accounts that are more biographical of Downard's life, when he is young, he's pulled off to, I don't know, I think it's Jekyll Island to meet, is it Alexander Graham Bell, one of the early people coming up with the teletype and the telephone. And what's going on there is they're all leveraging off this to make that. So much so that when I say this, they're leveraging off the magnetic masonry or the animal magnetism, which hypnosis demonstrates is real. But the the gurus in India were already teaching their disciples, look, we're showing you that to take the spiritual journey and get higher on the spiritual ladder, these amazing things you see your, your guru and teacher doing are now being proven by science. Look to America where they now have a teletype or a telephone. All they've done is scientifically with gadgets demonstrated this energy, which we've already been using for a few millennia. The problem is, is that it was all dark side. And I will add this warning. And I have been told by more than one person, never let yourself be hypnotized. It is not a good thing. There's your warning. Take it for what it is. But literally, I mean, you might want to look at being hypnotized as your brain being hijacked. Hypnotized like watching television? Exactly like that. All the worse when you're at a soiree or a get together and people volunteer to go on stage, which I actually did once. It's just that I didn't get hypnotized. Supposedly, everyone else there did. I mean, I'm pretty sure they put a small girl across chairs and the dude sat on her and he was much larger than her. She was stiff as a board. So I have no doubt that they they were hypnotized, but it didn't work on me. I doubted it going in and I doubted it even more as I came off stage, except for the people that were around me. There was a shy person up there barking like a dog and pecking like a chicken. So I'm reasonably sure that they were hypnotized. Luckily, I didn't get hypnotized and I was asked to leave leave the stage. But later on, by people who I respect at a high spiritual level, said never take part in that kind of thing. Not good. Together, Mesmer and Cagliostro formed the Order of Universal Harmony, whose fundamental principle lay in the idea that a relationship of harmony and accord between people exists or a relationship of discord between people exists for the same reasons. The former relationship was referred to as rapport. This rapport might appropriately be called Felatrice Masonry. So if I'm not mistaken, Felatrice would be maybe equivalent to the idea of fallacious, I think. In other words, I think what's being pointed out here is we live in a, in a duality. In the same way there's light, which most of us appreciate, there's going to be dark, which most of us don't appreciate as much. There are people in this world that appreciate the dark more than the light, and they're not breaking any rules. It's when things go too far and you begin injuring or waylaying the rights of another that you have gone too far. And that's what's so kind of vexing about everything we're talking about. It's almost as if they think because they're implementing these things in a sneaky way that somehow there's no karmic response. I have never been able to work that out. 
by the way. But there it is. So here, here Mesmer and Cagliostro are basically showing you that some forms of magic, which we think are ridiculous, they're real. And um, this is shown in nature. The ley lines, as an example, shows these energies, I think, if I comprehend properly. Masonry is actually thoroughly tantric, and tantrism preaches that the sexual organs are instruments of magic, and that it is the duty of the tantric to utilize them to that purpose. In tantric symbolism, the procreative organs are called lingam for the penis and yoni for the vagina, and are sometimes represented as a point within a circle. The lingam represented by the point was supposed to be the symbol of transcendent life, and the yoni or circle allegedly represented the feminine power in nature. The point in the circle can also represent the union of male with female, resulting in the union of God and humanity. The Masons apply this fertility information to their own death rites, ritual assassination, the symbolical uresis, and the autopsy. The latter comes from the Greek to see with one's own eyes. In the ancient mysteries, an autopsy signaled the communication of mystical secrets. After the autopsy, the corpse, or in the case of ritual, the fellow acting as the corpse, is placed in a coffin and the coffin on a catafalque and the catafalque in the center of a circle. There, the symbolical corpse awaits resurrection. In this necromancy, the corpse actually signifies the lingam, and as such, his coming to life again is supposed to be an erection. The individuals who practice fertility and death rites actually believe that such rites impart mystical power. So the way this is written, it almost seems like Mr. Downard is saying he's not buying, but I don't think that's the case because I am buying. Uh, if you go to temples that we can't imagine how they were built all over India, there's lingams. It's that round kind of, I don't know, what's a shape like? Like a lipstick tube with a dome lid on it, those big rock lingams. These played prominently in the story of the, uh, of the box saga, by the way, right? Human semen was being poured over them or something like that. The point I'm making here is this appears to be pointing at the duality. A long time ago, sex magic was recognized. Now, you heard the word tantric, and that has been associated all the way up to Tibet. It's the last place, I think, that ever became some kind of a nation that utilized tantric ideas supposedly, well, not supposedly, stated to speed up escape from the cycle of rebirth. In other words, reach enlightenment and break the materialistic bonds that hold us here. And what's all this about? Well, he's saying this is being used for rebirth. So it's almost like saying in an older time when there was more respect for a human life than there currently is by people in charge, which isn't hard to see anymore, the corporations don't have any regard for us. They have regard for themselves, money, and power. But back in this time, apparently, this kind of sexual magic was applied by those who were trying to benefit all other living beings and at the same time escape the cycle of rebirth. Whether that's true or not, you're going to have to come to your own conclusions. You can look endlessly 
at so much of the Tibetan writings and before Tibet, so much of the Indian Hindu mystic writings. So is it possible, I am asking, and I think it is, that these guys got a hold of these secrets and they went the other way with them? I think that's exactly what happened. But here I'm going to add something. I suspect, and I have good reason to suspect, that the secrets that Masonry got from the East were not totally divulged because the Eastern masters knew these guys were up to no good. What I'm suggesting is they didn't get the whole enchilada, but they got enough to do what they do. And that's just a point of view on my part. The Brotherhood of Stonemasons of the Middle Ages is traced to the Roman College, the Collegia Camentorium. The Camentari, stonemasons, did the manual labor of construction. They were mystically oriented in the same manner as the pontifices, and since they were working on sacred edifices under the direction of the sacred hierarchy, they attached special significance to measurement, numbers, and the dimensions of the physical universe in much the same manner as the god Kronos Saturn was supposed to govern these areas. Let's ask a simple question. You know, some people might be thinking, come on, man, this is a bridge too far. Let's ask a simple question. When the Masons were practicing, in other words, cutting stone and building, building, building buildings, have you ever seen more spiritual, grand, beautiful, gorgeous edifices in stone and glass than what these Masons made? For me, the answer is no. It's incredible what was built. So if they can do that as practicing stonemasons, what can they pull off when they're no longer practicing stonemasons, but they become speculative, which almost every mason is now? In other words, they're not build, they're not, their claim to fame is not using these occult ideas and these sacred geometries to build something grand. What they're doing now is they're interested in building a society which they control and which everyone else is controlled. From my point of view, the fact that these buildings, as stunning as they are, exist, what does that mean they might be able to pull off when they're not busy cutting stone anymore? A brief mention of the development of Gothic cathedral building is in order. The Masons, of course, actually did begin as pious and religious men whose task it was to take the Kalokagathis, the combining of truth and beauty, a reality in stone. Nevertheless, this was short-lived, and the corruption began almost immediately. An examination of the statuary devoted to Mary on these buildings is revealing. Originally, the depiction of the Mother of God was of a pure virgin, the ideal for all women. Soon, however, her likeness was molded as a real-life mother of great natural beauty. Supposedly, the faithful could relate to her new humanity, but they also sacrificed her otherworldly distance and holiness. The next step occurs when she is molded into the Magna Mater, the Earth Mother and fertility goddess, which is pleasing to masonry. Finally, in the 13th and 14th centuries, she becomes all too human, as at the Cathedral of Amiens, at the South Portal in the form of the Soubrette Picarde. She is actually degenerated into a coquette or one who has a tendency to engage in intrigue, and this is the Masonic influence in Gothic and on the cult of Mary. The Brotherhood of Stonemasons 
were the sole depository of such secrets of transformation, secrets which would one day be applied to a similar transformation of human women. All right, so you know the idea we just expressed with the lingam, that probably way back when these things first came to be, truly people were interested in benefiting all living beings, as is stated in almost all those spiritual endeavors, people refusing to eat meat because you'd have to kill something, being vegetarian, even going so far in sex like the Jains, where they won't even pick a fruit until it falls. They won't walk during the rainy season because there's too many worms and things you would step on. That's a pretty good indicator to me that they were very interested in being beneficial to all living things. Look how quickly that worm turned. Now we see this tantric whatever you want to call it, this method that was once applied to reach enlightenment, break the cycle of reincarnation as they saw it, was being perverted and turned into a psychological, mesmerizing way to control the masses. Well, here we are again. He points out exactly what I just said in the beginning. These were pious men who held a very important and very limited ancient knowledge. In other words, they were probably the only group who was initiated to know why these sacred measurements and numbers and buildings were important. You can feel it the moment you get in any one of these places. You can feel it. If you hear somebody sing in one of these places, you can feel it. It's not really questionable. But as Downard points out, it did not take long before that was co-opted. And what's the difference? These guys are practicing. They're building things. What are the other guys doing? They're not building things. They're controlling things. And what's kind of interesting is go look at all the Masonic lodges. Well, here's a good example. Go look at the one for Washington, D.C. Do you know the name of it, Jason? Is that the main one? The 33rd degree Supreme Council one? Yeah, the one, you know, that's got all the, you know, Egyptian and Greek looking stuff. Yeah, I don't remember what lodge number it is. It does not have a very high number, though. No, but what you go is you look at it and you think, boy, that's substantial, but it's not great architecture. It's just not. It's copying older ideas and it really stands out because most of us just live in rectangles and squares that are unadorned, which actually isn't true. If you go back to the late 1800, early 1900s, a lot of buildings were more beautiful than just a simple box or a rectangle. But my point is, is you can see the detachment from creating something new and beautiful and sacred into what they are using now. And I'll remind you one more time, every one of those temples is echoing the supposed Solomon's temple, which supposedly, if you want to accept their story, which I pretty much don't, existed for about 40 years. And you know, there's, there's a predecessor. I think it's at, I want to say Shiloh. Hope I get it right. I think that same temple was supposedly at Shiloh for a couple 200 years or something, maybe three, I don't know, before that. But the one that matters is the one that was in supposedly Jerusalem and supposedly stood for 30, 40 years. Not much time, considering that a building that they want us to believe stood for 30 or 40 years, whether it did or not, has echoed through every year of time ever since. It's incredible. Of course, I think it's Lodge number 33. <laughs> of course. The first lodge, if I'm not mistaken, Jason, is further south. And I believe it was consecrated on the easternmost 33rd parallel in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. And the last point for hour one, 
the Stonemasons, as a mystical labor union, had certain powers of jurisdiction over the laborers of their day, and with masses of such personnel, formed an intimate connection with the fraternity of Freemasons. The connection is so intimate that it is difficult to delineate the history of the one from the other, and their development is parallel. This union occurred at the same time as the decline of knighthood in Europe, even though modern Masons love to infer that their forebears were paradigms of chivalric rectitude. This is nonsense. The almost total subversion of stonemasonry took place in the 14th century. Quote, The decline of knighthood did not come until the 14th century when the money power of the towns destroyed the older agricultural order and courtly traditions degenerated into Don Quixote. And that is quoted from Gothic sculpture. All right. Well, there it is. Money, right? Does anyone need to be told about what can be done with money? Look around the world right now. Look around the world right now at the worthless nature of our money. And yet it still controls damn near everything. And that's what's being pointed out. Here were these highly trained, altruistic stonemasons who had jurisdiction to travel freely. And when they got to a place, they ruled this building site. And they were going to make something beautiful and special that only they could make. And the reason is because they were the only ones who were initiated with the knowledge to allow them to do it. To the point where I don't even think there's too many blueprints of anything that can be pointed to. It's like with Notre Dame. The Catholic Church says, oh, we built that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Tell me who the name of the architect was. You can't. The reason you can't is because he was a secretive stonemason, an actual mason that cut stone. Very quickly, that ended. Well, what was ending as the new kind of corrupted use of that initiated information, the new Freemasons who don't cut stone anymore? Well, the chivalric knighthood. In other words, might is not right, as is reflected in the Arthurian legend. These guys are mighty. They have horses. They have weapons. They have armor. They are mighty, and they stand and protect the common man, and they treat women in a certain way, and there's a code of conduct. You don't kill just for the sake of all that's coming to an end. And then all of a sudden, it flips. Money's coming into the picture, and the stonemasonry has become something else. And if I'm not mistaken... I don't quite get that, Jason. Is that the title of a book, Don Quixote? Is that is that a book or something? Gothic sculpture? I don't get it. Gothic sculpture must be a book because that's how it was listed in the King Kill text. All right. So the Don Quixote Gothic sculpture may be a book people can look up. But it just goes to show you that we live in a world of cycles. And that's why it's disconcerting to live now. But in the long run, this is going to fail. It just is. It's a cheap copy. This is not the creation going on around us. This is Fugazi parallel synthetic systems. It is a pale, it's not even a pale shadow. It's a tiny comma contending with a masterpiece called the, called the creation. And so, yeah, man, we could go through some very difficult changing times, but in the long run, this will not stand. And I guess the main lesson is here, look what can go on for a long time. It won't last forever. The cycles will go up and go down. I would ask, how long were the cycles positive? 
How long did the lingam back in those temples represent something for the benefit of all living beings? How long did the stonemasons who had these secrets pet do, do things to build something beautiful and sacred into this world? How long did that go on before the shift took place that we are living through right now? And I'm not sure what the answer is. I don't think we can know the answer to the temples because places like the Vatican scrubbed it and put it in their basement and hid it where they could. Anyhow, that's it, right? That's our one. That's it, but we've got a long way to go yet. We do have a long way to go. And this is the second episode trying to get through Simply King Kill. And anyone out there, I urge you, go read the downer writings. And even if you don't want to do it now, just get a hold of them and save them. If we do get to a point where the libraries are going away, which we may, that's possible. If we get to a point where Fahrenheit 451 predicted an outcome and the fire department starts showing up to burn books instead of put out fires, then these things could get lost. So it's important that we hold on to things because as far as I know, there are so few examples that went this deep to show. And another thing is, If you're a Mason out there listening to this, by no means am I calling you a villain. Some of my best friends from the military are Freemasons. I mean, I recognize my neighbor as a neighbor. What we're talking about is an organization that was co-opted from the top down. And unfortunately, I think the top throws away the bottom all the time and scapegoats them out. I think it's a common occurrence. And most of these men and very few women involved in this thing uh, are working family class men and women who just trying to do what they're doing. And they do get a secret handshake and they do get help from other people, but it's not sinister. But when you get up to the 33rd lodge that Jason pointed out in DC, yeah, we got a problem. How is it that the guy who this airport's named after is a Mason. How is it that everyone on the moonshot is a Mason? How is it? I mean, we can go on and on. All the presidents, it's a problem. The fox has gotten into the hen house. That's what I'm pointing out. All right. As we carry on, I just want to double down. It's important not to become bigoted with information like this. It is so important from my point of view that when you see a terrible thing being done or a problem being created, point only at those that are creating the problem. Don't get stuck in the mind warp of generalizing. Well, this guy's wearing a blue shirt. Clearly he's part of the problem. So everyone in the world with blue shirts is now a problem because there really is no different in that logic and what has gone on so long. The people who run this joint are cleverly scapegoating out the people below them because they don't care. It doesn't affect them one iota. As a matter of fact, you'll never know their names, probably. With that, we're going to bring hour one of 492 to a close. The first hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in, and they also get free access to the two-hour movie, Shoot the Moon, covering my scope work. With that, we're going to regroup and come back for hour two, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. <laughs>